This year, the Libertarian Party did something very, very right and very, very important. For the first time in at least three election cycles, we nominated a Libertarian for the Libertarian Party nomination for president with Dr. Joe Jorgensen. And as much as I respect Bob Barr, although that might be a stretch, I certainly, as an activist, have a certain respect for him. Gary Johnson, personal friend, love the guy, man of absolute integrity, proved it as governor. But they were the wrong strategy and the wrong message for the Libertarian Party and for America, because they weren't libertarian. So look here, we are offering now the possibility of not just a better, kinder, gentler tyrant, but something truly transformative for America. A transformation that, uh, what was the Jefferson quote we used to use so much during the Ron Paul days? A revolution with every generation? Or was it the tree of liberty must be watered from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants? I'm thinking of both, but it's the former that's relevant here. What those other candidates offered was not in any way describable or sellable as a revolution. Joe Jorgensen, by contrast, is a libertarian nominee for president. And having debated her several times, having shared a stage with her, I know that she can represent this message of peace, of love, respect, of freedom that is libertarianism to the American people. Now, here's the question. Our movement is capable of so much more than we give ourselves credit for. We are capable of a breakout year for the Libertarian Party. We are capable of doing better than we have ever done. We're capable of victory if we really, everybody pulls together. I mean, who? We determine, not so much the American people, what that next vote percentage is going to be for the Libertarian Party nominee for president. Gary Johnson, Bill Weld, two former two-term Republican governors, certainly had a unique appeal. But I know from all of my work, all of my activism, all of my time talking to my fellow Americans, that principles are a better sell, an easier sell. So what are we going to do with this opportunity? What will America do with this opportunity? Principles versus resume. That's what we have in the contrast. That's what we have chosen to go with for 2020. And there's this silly, unnecessary divide in our movement between 
principle and pragmatism. And it's like, these are not opposed concepts. Principle is pragmatic. That's the point of having principles, right? You do unprincipled things, you get unprincipled results. Resume matters, certainly. And Dr. Joe Jorgensen certainly has the professional credibility in hers, if not the political credibility, which, as we saw with Donald Trump, really is more of a, a discrediting feature at this point in American politics. America likes outsiders more than career politicians. I think that much is clear. So what will happen in 2020? I don't know. Will there be a second wave of the coronaphobia-inspired government-induced unemployment shutdowns? Will we have this forced unemployment crisis extended further? Who's to say? Will the George Floyd riots protests turn into something sustaining? Jim tells me in Phoenix, in Phoenix, in summer, when they say there's an 8 p.m. curfew, that means you can't protest because before 8 p.m., it's inhumane to be outside. There are a lot of things up in the air. And I know that principle will always be Everything else, certainly resumes. At this point, when it's Joe Jorgensen versus Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, Cheeto Jesus and the kitty sniffer, I'm confident that principles can win. Maybe it's up to you what the score is going to be in 2020. Let's make this a big year for the LP. And today is Tuesday. June, I had a check. Yesterday was an interesting day. Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. Later in the show today, we are interviewing Dr. Jorgensen herself. She's going to be joining us on the hour. And if you'd like to uh, get any questions in, we have Comment Jim Freedom in studio joining us, watching the comment streams. There he is. And Jim, we already have some great questions from our patron-only chat on Telegram, which you can join by going to patreon.com slash Adam versus demand. You can talk to Jim directly and me and CJ in the patrons only telegram chat. If you don't know what telegram is, I hate to do like a, an app promotion here, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a free messaging app. There's no ads. There's no, like it's, it's like super text messaging and it's really great for managing groups. If nothing else, right, Jim? I mean, yeah, you I learned like about it from me like from you, a yeah. month ago. I find that it's better for sharing pictures or videos also because sometimes when you send them from an iPhone to an Android, it comes out. Oh, much better. Much better because it's data transfer right. and it uploads full size in your messaging app and you can do it to a group and it's just to the Telegram servers. And supposedly it's encrypted. I don't really care about that because I wouldn't trust it anyway. I mean, I don't, not because I don't trust Telegram or honest people doing an app, I don't trust Verizon. <laughs> you know, I don't trust to, to not let the government into my phone, basically. So keep that in mind. But if you're not on Telegram, I, I do recommend it. Nice little life hack, practical app. 
And we have our patron-only Telegram chat group that you can join. Even by what level, Jim? Any level? Uh, the $5 level. Gets $5 and above. $5 and above gets you into the patron. The $1 level gender. gets you the back, uh, back behind-the-scenes footage. All right. Yeah, $1 a month even gets you uh, Patreon perks, which we're actually doing now. We've got some really cool behind-the-scenes stuff. Speaking of which, we might end up with some behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, we have a little story to tell. Crazy day yesterday here at the garden. We had a fire. We had a we had a, a, a serious fire, a freak fire, and um, it uh, it was it was quite an adventure of an afternoon. I was sitting in here after Sam had left for the afternoon to run errands, and just sitting here behind my laptop. And Jim knocks at the door, like, "Hey, there's a fire! There's a big fire!" And I go I go running out, and I see one of our little tire piles that we've been doing in Camos, and right away I go. Oh, I think I know what happened. There's one thing we're not going to talk about yet. Like, is this is there's some things that are public, but there are a couple things about this that we that we do for security reasons not want to discuss, like the exact origin of the fire, or you know some of the people involved, or uh, releasing any of the footage or photographs just yet of this. But um, it was basically a, a, a little freak confluence of events. And we had a small tire pile catch and tires, they're pretty hard to burn, but once they get going, they burn through or they burn out if they don't get smothered. You can't just like, you know, I mean, you can drown them, but you not with like, not with, yeah. you, nah, you really can't. Like if you have a, a pile of them burning, you need a full throttle fire hose to have like any chance of it. We had a garden hose just right. containing it. And shovels and dirt, and Hands on deck, the, it was dirt. it's dry and windy, and we had a brush pile, and this is a little irresponsible of us. And I I was waiting to get a a wood chipper, and now we're like shit. We really need to do a little better job fireproofing the property. But you know, a big part of my concept of homesteading and building out here and getting away from stick frame construction and entirely is we build fireproof shit. Everything out here is pretty much fireproof. Except, oh, whoops, pile of building materials and some brush. And we let it kind of burn through the immediate pile. It was, it was a pretty big flame. It got up you know, about uh, 30 feet high at one point because the tires, uh, you know, were burning really hot. And when, when the main part of the brush pile, and it was, you know, piled four or five feet high, and, and you know, for a couple of big clumps out over about 20 feet. And the, and the fire spread over this little area of brush uh downwind about maybe uh maybe a hundred feet altogether yeah uh kind of in a strip and then there was that, that's including the patch there's another patch of brush it jumped to and then crazy one little ember jumped like 200 feet back and set up just a log on fire missed all these other semi-natural brush piles from when yeah they're not really from when people were logging here and left down trees that have turned into kind of dangerous brush piles but uh it's nice to know that we could have contained it like so the fire uh, department was called i don't know who called him but you could see the fire from one of our neighbors came out and helped with the shovel and a rake not just a shovel, came out just drove out with a shovel and i was like oh you got a fire this is what you do Put it out. and and that was it you know and then so the fire department came out and by the time they got it they even said 
and the sheriffs had to come out and we had to let the, uh, you know, I didn't try to stop the sheriffs from coming onto the property. Cause it was like, okay, fire's responding. We're accepting their help. Sheriff's got, and you know, they came out, do, do you know how it started? No, you know what? I'll, I'll have to look into that later, sir. You know, shook hands and it was all very, and out here, law enforcement is generally very friendly. Well, there was one little incident. I'm not even going to say because it involves one of the neighbors, but uh, generally everything was pretty smooth. And, and the firefighters told the sheriffs, hey, when we got here, it was out mostly and, and contained. And uh, I almost wish they hadn't come and we could have contained it without them. Because we would have. It just it would have been like a six-hour massive pain in the ass of shoveling and and buckets and using up all of our water um but they came out and there were about 10 volunteers all volunteers they had two departments come out the uh, ashford volunteer fire department so they get a call you know they're at work or at home and they they drop what they're doing they drive to the station they get in the trucks they come out and uh you know they had pretty good response time really i mean the fire had burned through what it had burned through but if it was a slow burning house fire like they might have been able to save a house out here or at least part of it. Yeah. Um, and then Kai Bob Estates West has their own community fire department volunteers and they came out. And that was great. And, you know, I wish we had more of a chance to connect with them, but it was just like, okay, yeah. that was serious, but it's done. Thank you. And they all were great and friendly. And they were, they knew like it was as far as their, you know, their job goes, it was a no big deal fire. It was like, okay, you know. Um, I wonder if we could reach out and thank them. But yeah, well, publicly, absolutely, thank you guys for coming out and for being awesome. Uh, more than for coming out to help us, for for being capable and showing what you're capable of doing and being, you know, on the ball and fast and professional and you know, performing the whole time. It was great. And the, these are community-based volunteer fire departments, you know, and it and the government presence, and I, I won't, again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell this part of the story only made things worse. Like there's, they, they, they you know, they, well, if there's a fire, there's the potential of a crime, you know, we have injuries and we file in reports and making it. And, you know, if so, you know, they come out, they just make people nervous. And uh, yeah, that kind of actually of the worst part of the story that kind of sums it up yeah. and traffic, <laughs> right? They got in the way at one point, like that was it. But, but it was it was not a big deal, you know, and, and by, you know, all, all in all, even that there were two different sheriffs who showed up, um, Scott and Steve. And, you know, from my experience with both of them, you know, thanks for coming out, guys. Like, you know, as as community service volunteers, as people looking out for public safety, they were here. They were polite. They were professional. Um, they didn't jump in with shovels, you know, but, you know, they weren't they weren't really, uh, yeah. you know, directly. But they were great. They were professional and friendly the whole time. And, uh, Jim and, and you have anything? Jim was there. Jim and I were really the ones on and, and Peter, it was really, uh, me and Jim and Peter and, uh, the, the, the three dudes with the hoses who came out. Um, but really most like, and, and having to, con to contain the tires that were still burning, they had to, they had to be buried. Like you oh, yeah. put, even yeah. you put the water out on them, there's hot embers and they reignite yeah. in the rubber. It was uh, same thing with some of them logs out there. We had to pile so much dirt. So it just literally, yeah. In terms of yeah. Yeah. We did what we had to do. So crazy day. Um, when, when we have the time to have like our full security debriefing from this, we'll go over the, we have some video. Did you fly the drone for a few minutes in the yeah. middle of that? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I was watching the main burn, right? And you knew oh, that we were yeah. just watching oh, yeah, it. And yeah. someone was on the it was, when it was going crazy and it was 30 feet, obviously, I wasn't missing how many drone footage was that. You can see the only drone footage I have is the patches. Then what I was As really it was doing, dying out. the reason that I pulled out yeah. the drone in the first place is because I wanted to get an aerial view to see if any further bushes. Yeah, that's smart, too. Yeah, there's a good security smaller. reason for that. So too. I was looking around in a circle to see if there was anything else catching. Yeah. And then I ran yeah. back down and went back to help. Yeah. Did you see when you were on the drone, did you see the log 200 feet away? You didn't even go that far. Yeah. You're just looking at like the immediate area, right? Yeah, but I could see yeah. it smoking. Yeah. Yeah. We were watching those. We watched the downwind area, and then uh, it was funny. They were like, I I thought they were actually they actually left pretty quickly. Like I thought, like yeah. I mean, I thought that like that a couple of them would have walked around with us, and it was really Jim and I, the guy, were like, and I liked that because we were because they could tell we were capable, and we were just like. Yeah. let's de-escalate you guys can like we weren't saying oh please help, help us it wasn't like yeah, you know we were, we yeah, were we a retired old couple down. like yeah. yeah we we had a crew here and um you know joe and helen and um and mike and and even brian um who's uh 12 i'm not sure right yeah uh kid out here yeah um they, they were all very helpful um you know supporting me and Peter and, and Jim on the front line containing that. And, uh, I mean, the main it's, yeah, I mean, it must've only been burning. Like it, it, it crept up and probably took like half an hour maybe to creep up to being like, Oh shit. Yeah. And then got everybody's and then attention. Everybody and then we got out there and we, we, we scrambled, you know what? I, we made one mistake actually really in the beginning, we should have pulled tires away instead of running to get the hose you know i mean hard to say yeah you know, like because we got we still got there and went and pulled up but we should have yeah, been yeah. like really decisive get the hose pull tires out of the pile and and start moving the brush away and we might have we might have been able to really contain it much smaller that way we lost four trees we lost some work we got a mess but the tree that no we transplanted survived. Probably, probably. Literally, it looks like it'll survive. It like got, it got sooted, it. yeah. Ten feet away. But from because the of the angle of the wind, like it just missed our transplant tree. So yeah, we got some work to do. And uh, if you want to come help us clean up the mess, send me an email at thefreedomline.com. All right. Any uh, any interesting comments so uh, far this morning, Jim? Yeah, uh, Knuckles. Finally, I caught one live. Fucking YouTube always sends me alerts after they end. <laughs> so he finally All right. decided to catch Thank you for joining us live. Show to see live too with yeah, excellent. Excellent. All right. To the headlines. Unless you have any, do you have anything else, Jim? Uh, well, just one more, I guess. Stonewall Tommy Jackson. It would be so nice to see you guys get the same publicity in mainstream media press that republicans and democrats get but if that happened the duopoly stronghold would be over if we're at all yeah and and this gets to the power of the media and independent media and helping build platforms like this and you see what we're doing you know we've got we got three dudes very committed to putting together a comprehensive you know daily news magazine style podcast 
that you know promotes a counter narrative to the mainstream media that interviews libertarian candidates in fact i mean as a counter deliberately almost exclusively <laughs> yeah i you know i'm sure as we develop the show we get or like you know we're doing guests well we got mike rufo yesterday new jersey libertarian congressional candidate great dude fun conversation yesterday if you missed that go check it out um you know and we got joe jorgensen today we got our schedule worked out with uh with her her press secretary so we're going to be interviewing Joe and then Spike a month later and then Joe a month later and then Spike and then Joe roughly, uh, you know, alternating going up all the way through the general election cycle. So we are an officially sanctioned media outlet representative of you know, carrying the message of Joe Jorgensen for 2020. So happy to be, you know, serving that way with this platform. Um, and, and in terms of what I said in my opener, I should remind everybody. You know, go change your social media platform uh, profile frame for the next five months to to the uh, Jorgensen Cohen Facebook profile frame. Uh, Facebook's the easiest way to do it. Get on your Facebook profile. Are you doing it now, Jim? Did you not? Right you haven't gotten to even Jim I gets to get does vote Adam because I did <laughs> I vote Adam Gogesh get a free country. Yeah, because we did this. I mean, I, I you know I, I said this publicly. You know, like right after the convention. Like, yeah, this is uh, on our next show on on the the Monday following that weekend. And, you know, it took me two minutes for my phone. You get on Facebook, click on your profile picture, and there's a ad frame option somewhere in the, the menu that pulls up very easily right off the profile picture. And uh, then you search Jorgensen. And there's a couple. The one it's down. the fifth one down because probably happy if you're watching the show right now. It's probably the most common one. That your friends are sporting, or and there, there are a couple different ones. Oh, it says Jorgensen Cohen. Yeah, so you see on on my Facebook profile, we go facebook.com slash Adam Charles Kokesh. Um, I like the black and yellow more than jo jo Joe's purple. <laughs> um, I like I that's you know personal aesthetics, but also building the party brand red, blue, yellow as a primary color. Uh, you know, I, I like that better than the purple. But if you like the purple. If that goes better with your profile picture, that brings out your eyes more, you know, go with that. But uh, if, if you look at my Facebook profile frame, uh, it's got Jorgensen Cohen and it's got the Liberty Torch. I think it says, did it say LP.org on it? I think it does. Or her website, one or the other. And then you just say it, it actually generates a new image in Facebook. So you save that and post on, you know, your Instagram, your Twitter, your TikTok, wherever else. Uh, but as I was saying, you see the effort that the three of us are putting into this show. And you can join us in that effort as a patron. You get in the, you give us $5 a month. You get in the Patreon chat. You're like a, uh, you're, you're really like an assistant producer to the extent that you want to help me prep material, uh, you know, decide what news stories to cover, what to read, what, you know, what to prep, what to comment on. If you guys want me to do more original stuff. Um, you know, as we get more organized, my opening monologues, as I have more time for prep. If you guys help me with prepping news stories and even live during the show, especially being in the chat and being able to, you know, this is a great way with, with Jim Freedom here in the studio, comment Jim Freedom, watching the comments continuously is that we get to, uh, have your input challenging question me. If I, if you think I'm wrong about something. You know, Jim's going to mention it. Hey, Adam, you might be wrong about this. Have you considered this point? 
And hey, Adam, you missed this whole other factual part of the story here. Check out this link, you know, and, and it's a great way to, to help us make this a better show to the point of our commenter. You know, if you got as much media as the Republicans and Democrats, you know, the Libertarian Party would be a lot further along. I agree. We need to build platforms like this. So help us make this a better show. Support us financially. We're going to be able to invest that into the program and, um, you know, help share this. If you're watching right now, share it out. Are you having fun? I'm having fun. I always have fun with the show. Even when we get serious, it's fun. You can write bad jokes for me, too. I have I have an app on my phone. Like right now, our best connection is with an external microphone on my cell phone, and that's where. So I can't act. I can't look at my phone, and uh, I have a access my dad joke app. I actually, did you know this, Jim? There's an actual app called Dad Jokes. Really? Yeah, you get it on the Play Store. Um, there's it's it's a lot of really bad puns. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> CJ, producer notes. First, oh. of course, schedule adjustment, right? We are going an hour earlier next week. It's going to make his job a little easier. But today, uh, what what is that? Your data is going so slow, sir, that it looks like you're doing Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto today. Oh, no. Oh, no. Thank you, Verizon. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, I, I was kind of get Jim's attention in the private chat, but he's uh, he's a little occupied at the moment. Uh, oh. So, yeah, but uh, we uh, are moving the show an hour early starting next week. So it'll be 11 o'clock Central Standard Time, noon Eastern, uh, 9 Pacific. So that'll be happening. You can reach me, CJ, at the free, or, excuse me, producer at thefreedomline.com. And, uh, yeah, no, I just wanted to make sure that we can, before we jump into all the headlines, sir, that we can see if there's a way to make you not do the robot today. Audio is great, though. Well, as long as the audio is great, I hope more people are listening than watching anyway. Most likely, but when it comes time to uh, interview the Libertarian presidential nominee. Yeah, right. Hopefully by then we'll have a clear signal. No, hotspot's off. Um, You know, I... We need a. Maybe we can find a way with my phone to uh, focus it so that when it's doing this, it, it blocks all other potential data connections and stuff running. Yeah, the it's it's only getting worse, sir. Normally it gets a little better as we go, but it's only getting worse. Or if one of our assistant producers wants to help us out through Patreon and figure out a better internet service altogether, I would have thought by now, like. You know, and, and CJ, you know, part of what's awesome about what we're doing is how we're all just the three of us capable of kind of struggling through whatever technical challenges and keeping the show going and every day producing really critical content that, that gives people a good sense of being grounded in what's going on in, in America and, and the world at large. And I think the technical difficulties are kind of a part of this. You know, like, things yeah. like, like Verizon doesn't have any money coming in right now. Like, oh, how are they? Nobody's paid their phone bill in three months. How I would, I would, right? I would, I would <laughs> think that, I would think that at some point people would see our dedication and realize that if we had appropriate funding for what we're trying to do, that we would have these technical issues worked but, out. Yeah, is that even possible to, I mean, like every, like even during the convention, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, 
there there were people who were like, you know, the parliamentarian had to switch to his hotspot because his landline went out in the middle of the, the, the convention. Correct. You know, and it's good. You, and we have re- we have a little redundancy here. You know, we have the potential for multiple hotspots on di- on AT and T and Verizon at least. But shit, like, still, uh, what what's the next level? I mean, and what if this just like this is the new reality for a while? We live in the third world country of the United Soviet Socialist States of America. I'm just saying that yeah. if this is what the internet's like in Gardenia. You know, uh, but, uh, you know, that's the, that's the thing is that when it comes to internet connections, it's only as reliable as the network you're using, really, in all honesty. Right. So, so, I mean, honestly. Is there satellite or micro? Is there, like, I thought by now, well, I thought we'd have flying cars by now. Anyway, we actually do. That's one of the stories we're going to get to later on in the show today. They finally, like, there have been different versions of this, but they finally, it looks like they nailed the formula. For, for one person flying cars, like drone taxis, like they're, they're really here on, on a potentially bigger scale. It's pretty cool. Um, but I thought we'd like satellite mesh networks. I thought like in the United States, we'd have figured out internet connectivity by now. We haven't like what, 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 what the really? Is there is there a way to try? Do you have another option to use for internet today, uh, at least for the Joe Jorgensen interview that we can switch to real quick? Well, let's try. We can try. Is that hotspot yeah, on? All right, let's yeah. let's see if this does it. We'll we'll go. We'll switch to AT and T. Yeah, AT and T gets crystal clear, right? You might have to. It might take a moment, folks, for. Uh, for, for this to, to connect back up. So uh, just, again, a reminder for everybody to go to thefreedomline.com. Again, producer at thefreedomline.com. And look at that. He's crystal clear. Oh, hey, hey. All right. So, all right, sir. It. But that's all I got for producer notes. Ricky, we'll do it live. Man, this is funny. <laughs> well, I, now you have to censor yourself for YouTube. I can't say the F word. Yeah. Like, and I just... My podcast, it used to be a safe space for me, and now it's not. <laughs> like, right? this is what, what's going on, CJ? Like, this is, I, like, I come back to full-time podcasting with CJ making this possible and, and, and doing an awesome job getting us out and finding out he's still, fi- like, after being demonetized and remonetized on YouTube and going, you know, like, all right, we're, we're not doing anything that, you know, depicts violence. Or advocates anything even close to that. Like we're is, still getting every video has to be reviewed, and uh, like, so and, and we're manually served. Every talking about this, it's like <laughs> every video is reviewed manually by somebody at YouTube. It's all every video you post is immediately put under review. It takes an hour, up to an hour before we can even re-download the video to make our daily clips. And then by the time they've held it for review, you get no credit for monetization. And on average, with the viewership we get, you know, uh, you know, some of the clips get about a thousand to two thousand views that you're not getting real credit for. But now, what's a thousand divided into twenty four or, or two hundred and forty thousand? You're getting one two hundred and forty. Like your your percentage for viewers to your subscriber ratio is the telltale sign to me that you're being censored, sir. So yeah. 
Bro, yep. So you got to be engaged. You know, you can't. So, by the way, this is tobacco uh, for, for YouTube. As far as YouTube needs to know. Yeah, but um, every time you curse, every time that you, you bring on a pipe like that and they can say it's drug use or anything like that, I have to go through manually. If you talk about COVID-19, I, that's a whole separate YouTube category. I mean, it's there's about five. No, I'm sorry. There's eight sections of, of different types of, of uh, content that you have to describe whether or not you used it. And then on top of that, there's subcategories in that. And then they go through and manually determine whether or not you're even qualified for monetization. So it's it's so a big the, problem. Sir. The corona, the corona thing. Yeah, The fact that we just said that right now makes it so that this video will be held in review. You said it first. Because they have to make I did. They have to. <laughs> they have to make sure that we're not spreading corona misinformation. Right, you know, but this is <laughs> okay. I don't have a face big enough to palm. But <clears throat> yeah, but that's what, that's what I got for today, sir. Again, you're the most censored man on YouTube, in my opinion, and I stand by that. So. Well, all the more reason to encourage people to subscribe, not just on YouTube or set up alerts. But I, I really, I really hope that we, you know, more people value this as a live show, as a live production, and are coming on to be a part of this. And you know, you know, it's like make this part, like make this part of your weekday routine. We're, I'm gonna be here, and if if for whatever emergency I can't be here, Jim's gonna be here, or CJ's gonna be here, or Sam's gonna be here, or some combination of the team here. And they're going to be at least executing the basic formula of hosting this conversation and giving you the critical headlines of, of what you need to know what's going on in the world today. So, I, you know, set an alarm on your phone. Show starting at, you know, and set, set an alarm for, well, next starting, starting next week, week 8.55 a.m. Pacific time. Where we really, we're starting at 9 a.m. Yeah. Normal work. So it's like, and I'm, I'm, I like, I, I realize like, I like getting up earlier. You know, when, when I live out, you know, in, in the country like this, you get on a more natural sleep pattern. So yeah, I love it. I love like, and, and so yeah, I'm going to be getting up to prep for the show at like seven o'clock. And I mean, I do my, for me, prep is continuous, by the way. You, you know, I'm, I'm on the Patreon only telegram chat. Cause like I, I, probably like five or six times a day and I'm constantly checking messages on my phone. It's kind of in that big pile of just text messages. And I go through all of that, you know, regularly throughout the day, but yeah, I'm going to be up prepping at 7am and, and making sure that you can start your wage slave work day, start at 9am with a little Adam versus the man. All right. From WIVB.com Buffalo Trump, claims 75-year-old Buffalo protester could be Antifa provocateur as man remains hospitalized. And you've probably seen this footage. This is the famous one where th this gentleman, uh, older guy, turns out, um, yeah, turns out he's 75 years old and, you know, kind of looks it. He's not, he's not a 75-year-old CrossFit champion. He's a 75-year-old dude who's healthy, but you know, he's 75 years old, frail, and he, a tall guy walks up to a police line, gets pushed back, stumbles walking backwards. And I get it. I get it that, you know, oh, here it is. Thank you so much, CJ. Yeah, this, this footage, and it's, 
it's disturbing on a couple of levels and it's not the the most obnoxious thing you know if you walk up to a line of riot police expect to get pushed back right you, you know, it, and it's not like they they shoved him hard, but it was enough that he, he he moved back, and as he was going back, he fell, right? And people people try like the the police apologists here. Try, oh well, he tripped. Yeah, because he was pushed. Like hello, like it's it's not like he was just walking around and tripped, and the police had nothing to do with it other than being in the area. No, they pushed him as he was moving back against his will in a way that he was not prepared for because he was going up peacefully in good faith, expecting to be, and there was, there was nothing going on like right there. Like it was, a you, you look at that video, it was a line of cops moving through it, it, some kind of empty courtyard space. There weren't, and, and it's just this one dude. And it's a loose line. They're not with like shields, like in a you know rigid line. They're like kind of in a scraggling mob of a line like sweeping through. It was, it was, it was a bit of an unusual scene and he falls back and he starts bleeding from the, from his head. It looked like his ear. I, I mean, I didn't, did, did you see the detail? And it's, it's weird, but no, he fell legit on pavement and hit his head and he's in, he's still in the hospital with this shit. And he, um, it, 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 it makes sense that he's being examined, you know, like when, when something like everybody on the internet, we've got hundreds of, of, you know, Americans in their parents' basements all trying to play video detective. And that's great. You know, that, that anytime there's a, a, an important or controversial video, there are people poking around going, could it, you know, considering every crazy possibility, that's a good thing. I'm glad that that's a feature of the internet, that people use it to do that. But in this case, the far-fetched theory is coming from Cheeto Jesus himself? Like, really? And this tweet from Trump. Here it is. Pull up the tweet itself, please, CJ. Buffalo protesters shoved by police could be an Antifa provocateur. 75-year-old Martin Gugino was pushed away after appearing to scan police communications in order to black out the equipment like now here you like right away you go implausible not mm, no like smart this dude is smart enough to scan police communications and black out equipment but not smart enough to avoid walking into the police line um i watched he fell harder than was pushed yeah because he tripped going backwards with momentum and and landed pretty hard with it and and this you know made me think of you know my jefferson dance party thing where you know being young and fit taking a fall like that on on a hard floor well i was i was really slammed yeah, but it's yeah. the you know you, you fall with that full force momentum of a body weight falling you know your head fall yeah, I mean, I tucked my chin and slapped the ground so I didn't crack my skull open. And now I go, ah, shit, it happened to this guy of all people. Now, could it have been a setup? Could it have been <clears throat> like some kind of deliberate civil disobedience? Maybe the guy was walking up to get arrested. Like, you know what? 
I'm just going to stand in the way of the police. And you're going to arrest me. And they shove him to the ground. And unfortunately, because he's old and they're clumsy, it causes an injury. But, it, I mean, serious injury. Um, but then on the, the other note is... Yeah, of of, of the, this video being disturbing as the police walking by him. Pull that up again, please, CJ. Is it after? Yeah, are we gonna get? We might get flagged on YouTube for showing this. Um, is that uh, there are four or five cops right there, right? So there they push him, and and he fall and he's down, and one guy look, one guy goes to look, and then keeps going, and the other guys keep going. And ostensibly, what they're doing in some kind of crowd control—that was a pretty serious shove. Now they look at it like it wasn't just—I mean, it was—it was—it was kind of—it wasn't—it it was sort of within the realm of police procedure, though. Like I, I yeah. even in a private security society, like I want a security force to be able to apply force to someone who's being unruly to remove them from an area. Like, and it was. It was reasonable that in and of itself, but that he's that they did they decided to do that when he's walk an old a really old dude like a really and he's visibly old and he's not vibrant. He, like if he was on meth, you still wouldn't. If he was on PCP, you still wouldn't. And this is the stupid shit cops have to think about, right? He still wouldn't be a threat. So no, this is this is just like. And, and why does Trump do shit like this? You, there's, a, there's an element of confusion, right? Fear, uncertainty, doubt. Where you go, yeah, he's just trying to make things confusing. But at this point, I really think he shot, like, you, you keep digging holes for yourself. Eventually, you, you know, you're, you're just, they start caving in on you. Your hole gets deep enough, you, you die. You, you get buried. I think that I think Trump is I, I think the Democrats did a great job setting him up with the double whammy trap of the coronaphobia and and uh, the George Floyd everything riots protests and and upheaval and you know highlighting racism when Trump smells of racism all right so to scanning down in the story please CJ to Dan Telvox tweet statement of Mr. Gugino's, Gugino's attorney on the real Donald Trump tweet. Thank you for following up regarding the president's tweet about my client, Martin Gugino. Martin is out of ICU, but still hospitalized and truly needs to rest. Martin has always been a peaceful protester because he cares about today's society. He is also a typical Western New Yorker who loves his family. No one from law enforcement has even suggested anything otherwise, so we are at a loss to understand why the president of the united states would make such a dark dangerous and untrue accusations against him this is really disturbing and uh you know politics aside you know my heart goes out to uh, to martin and wishing him nothing but the speediest of recoveries and hopefully some uh, financial and uh, comp- compensatory justice from uh, the buffalo officers and department responsible from wave3.com governor bashir announces plans to provide 100 health coverage for black residents this is in kentucky just a quick note governor andy bashir on monday announced the state will begin working toward correcting inequalities in health care coverage across the state 
During his daily updates in Frankfurt the last three months, Bashir has given a breakdown of the racial makeup of the state's COVID-19 cases throughout the crisis. Cases involving black patients have outpaced the state's black population. As he said, quote, we are going to begin an effort to cover 100% of our individuals in our black and African-American communities. We're going to be putting dollars behind it. Yep, another excuse for government spending. Just And, and you know, we're going to make it like and I'm, I'm actually... You know, I'm actually genuinely swayed by the argument for reparations. If you're a descendant of slaves, if you're somehow impoverished and disadvantaged and you can show because of that, like, yeah, there's there, like from a libertarian sense of justice, there, there's there's justice that is not uh, and in, there injustices countless that have not been addressed. That being said. You don't need to break it down by race to say that injustices have been committed. Yes, black Americans have a unique and particularly dark set of injustices that they have faced. But it's what has been robbed from all of us at this point by government and our potential and our inheritance, our our birthright, the ability to homestead land. You know, 40 acres and a mule was was the promise of, uh, you know, slave reparations, because that was at the time considered. Your start to self-sustainability. You got a piece of land, you got an animal to, to, to work it. 40 acres and a mule. And it's funny, that's the equivalent of what I was offering with my presidential platform and localization essentially to everyone. 10,000 AmeriCoin used uh, to be backed by and it, as part of the process of auctioning off all of the land in the western states that has been claimed 50% of the land west of the Mississippi owned by the federal government. Let's take it back. You know, and then every poor American, everybody who's been a victim, you know, we can raise everybody up with this. And, and this I hear like, oh, we're going to make it equal for everybody through government. It's like, oh, really? You're going to give up, going to give up your premium health care plan, Mr. Governor? I doubt it. All ethnicities are equal, but some are more equal than others. That's what you're going to get from government. You like that animal form reference? Was that, was that obvious enough? <laughs> From finance.yahoo.com, a crash in the dollar is coming from Stephen Roach with Bloomberg. Opinion, the era of the U.S. dollar's exorbitant privilege as the world's primary reserve currency is coming to an end. Then French finance minister Valérie Giscard d'Estaing coined that phrase in the 1960s largely out of frustration, bemoaning a United States that drew freely on the rest of the world to support its overextended standard of living. For almost 60 years, the world complained but did nothing about it. Those days are over. And I'm like, oh, wow, I love seeing this in black and white. See, I, mean, I hope it's in print somewhere. Probably all digital anyway now. Newspapers could be carriers of the coronavirus, so says Lord Bloomberg. Um, so the world complained about it, but did, now this is like... I do want to take a little bit of an issue with this. I think it's still beautiful that uh, that Stephen here is pointing out the global ripoff that the Federal Reserve System has represented and what that has meant for the American people as citizens of the empire, that we have benefited from the U.S. dollar being the petrodollar, right? So many transactions around the world with oil and gas have, have to be done with the U.S. dollar. So many deals when with the foreign aid, you know, and they, this is a huge 
global manipulation racket centered around the U.S. dollar and the Federal Reserve System. And we generally don't appreciate how good we have it here in terms of standard of living compared to the rest of the world, not quality of life. You know, you put up with government and the police state, you know, being an empire and the empire of angst and aggravation isn't exactly always a better life. But in terms of material benefits and creature comforts and money spent on us and resources that come to us from the rest of the world, we're doing really well here. Why? Because we are the pampered citizens of the empire of the dollar. Now, when he says, for almost 60 years, the world complained but did nothing about it, those days are over. There's, I, I don't want to challenge this, but I think there's one really important note that needs to be added to this narrative. The world complained but did nothing about it. Why not? Because of the U.S. military, biggest in the world, bullying everybody into submission. Colonel Gaddafi, Libya, trying to get a gold black currency for Africa that would take a big chunk of the petrodollar's business. Oh, well, we'll turn a little uh, uprising in nearby Tunisia where the vendor let himself on fire and turn it into the Arab Spring and Gaddafi's out. And specifically in that, more than in uh, other episodes of the Arab Spring, there was significant U.S. military involvement, if you recall, Air Force, uh, in particular, helping out the uh, locals attempting to dispose Gaddafi, who ended up, can I say what they did? CJ, can I say something? Can I just, like, this is a matter of historical record. Am I allowed to even say graphic stuff on YouTube now? Like, you know what they did to him? I'll just say they violated him from the wrong end with a large knife. Like, it was, yeah. Is that enough without making it graphic? So, and yeah, it was the U.S. CIA and military that set that up. That's why you don't mess with the dollar empire. Although, now, ways around, opting out, maybe you can do it without getting killed. Already stressed by the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, U.S. living standards are about to be squeezed as never before. And really, we're just starting to feel that. You know, it's servers, waiters, strippers, bartenders, uh, you know, people whose industries are just like movie theaters. You know, people in these sectors that are just kind of wiped out and, you know, coming back. But in in a lot of ways, you know, there is going to be. Remember, we covered the story. It was uh, Bob Michelle with J.P. Morgan, one of their analysts, saying, that this unemployment crisis is going to take 10 years to recover from. I think we might get past it in some ways, but yeah, if, if the general foundations of the economy hold constant, yeah, it's, it's like it's going to take 10 years to work its way out of the system to really come back from that. And there's going to be, as we see, you know, family members leaning on each other. We're going to see a, we're going to see a continual contraction of all the luxury goods markets all the optional purchases all of those things there's going to be a you know kind of leveling but a a significant extended reduction in quality of life at the same time the world's having serious doubts about the once widely accepted presumption of american exceptionalism currencies set the equilibrium between these two forces domestic economic fundamentals 
and foreign perceptions of a nation's strength or weakness. The balance is shifting, and a crash in the dollar could well be in the offing. Maybe just a shakeup long overdue, sparked by Corona. The seeds of this problem were sown by a profound shortfall in domestic U.S. savings that was glaringly apparent before the pandemic. Now, just little conspiracy theory here to the side. Let's say, I mean, we know we know that these riots are, you know, and, and, and protests are, are to a certain degree fabricated, at least in the timing of them. I mean, there's genuine grassroots support. I'm not saying that, but you know, putting out bricks, some of the the money behind organizing, some of the money going to end. Tifa, you know, things like that. Russia could do this. For, and I hate to use Russia as the example, right? Mm-hmm. By the way, how big is Russia compared to the United States by the economy? One thirtieth to one fortieth, a tiny, tiny fraction. So in terms of economic power, we, we, you know, insignificant compared to the United States. Military power, insignificant compared to the United States. But if they feel or any other country feels particularly bullied by the dollar system, and they see COVID-19 as the opportunity. Like, think any country in the world that's going, you know what? We, we'd be better off with that. How much would it save us a year if we didn't have to use the U.S. dollar? How much? Billions. Like, there are plenty of trans... There's, there's that, it's that scale of money that's being skimmed off the top by the imposition of the dollar as the world reserve currency. So for a country like that to say, Jeez, you know what? Corona's kind of given us an opportunity. But if we, if everything else is calm and we're coming out of Corona, the United States could still wage war. But what if the United States was temporarily consumed with riots and domestic upheaval and then, like right now, could Trump, like, get away with the propaganda necessary to build the consent to be concerned with something else other than what's going on in America's streets right now to send troops abroad? Maybe not. And maybe if this is part of somebody else's bigger plan, they go, well, we're going to pull the plug on a chunk of the dollar and the United States is not going to be able to pay their troops. Right? I should say the U.S. government is not going to be able to pay the military. So, In the first quarter of 2020, net national savings, which includes depreciation-adjusted savings of households, businesses, and the government sector fell to 1.4% of national income, the lowest reading since 2011, one-fifth the average of 7% from 1960 to 2005. Lacking in domestic saving and wanting to invest and grow, the U.S. has taken great advantage of the dollar's role as the world's primary reserve currency and drawn heavily on surplus savings from abroad to square the circle, but not without a price in order to attract foreign capital. The U.S. has run a deficit in its current account, which is the broadest measure of trade because it includes investment, every year since 1982. COVID-19 and the economic crisis it has triggered is stretching this tension between saving and the current account to the breaking point. The culprit exploding government budget deficits. According to the Bipartisan Congressional Budget Office, the federal budget deficit is likely to soar to a peacetime record of 17.9% of GDP in 2020 before hopefully receding to 9.8 in 21. A significant, yeah, hopefully, right. No, it's going to collapse first. A significant portion of it. Before it gets, no. 
Uh, so, I mean, that, that, do you see what huge, like the federal budget deficit, I mean, soar to a peacetime record, 17.9% of GDP. I mean, there are all sorts of, like, can you imagine like a household budget, like borrowing that much you're talking about just this year, even if you were starting this year without any debt, you know, you're talking like the, the household equivalent of maxing out a few credit cards. And then hoping, oh yeah, we'll be able to pay, you know, we'll be able to get our rate of, of borrowing down to about a half in, in less than a year. No. And remember, you know, not, not mentioned in, in this story is the potential for, uh, a $10,000 monthly welfare check for basically every family in America. If that, you know, if the, big COVID bill relief bill that they want passes, you know, 2000 for a person and their spouse and up to three children. A significant portion of the fiscal support has initially been saved by fear driven unemployed U.S. workers. That tends to ameliorate some of the immediate pressures on overall national saving. However, monthly treasury department data show that the crisis related expansion of the federal deficit has thus far outstripped the fear driven surge in personal saving with the April deficit 5.7 times the shortfall in the first quarter or fully 50% larger than the April increment of personal saving. In other words, intense downward pressure is now building on already sharply depressed domestic saving. Compared with the situation during the global financial crisis when domestic saving was a net negative for the first time on record, averaging minus 1.8% of national income for the third quarter of 2008 to the second quarter of 2010, a much sharper drop into the negative territory is now likely possibly plunging into the unheard of minus five to minus 10% zone. That means that on average, Americans are pulling that much out of savings. Anybody know what that's like? Anybody been doing that lately? While you were waiting for your $1,200 stimulus check to arrive, you had to maybe sell some silver. You had to maybe cash out some Bitcoin. Then we pay some bills. And that's stuff that's not even counted in this. This is just in the big official numbers that are trackable. And that is where the dollar will come into play. For the moment, the greenback is strong, benefiting from typical safe haven demand, long evident during periods of crisis. Against a broad cross-section of U.S. trading partners, the dollar was up almost 7% over the January to April period in inflation-adjusted trade-weighted terms to a level that stands fully 33% above its July 2011 low Bankford. Uh, international settlements data show, uh, but the coming collapse in saving points to a sharp widening of the current account deficit, likely taking it well beyond the prior record of 6.3% of GDP that it reached in late 2005. Reserve currency or not, the dollar will not be spared under these circumstances. The key question is, what will spark the decline? Look no further than the Trump administration protectionist trade policies funny how those all got kind of brushed to the side under covid you know the, the general war with the trade we went from a trade war to a bio war with china and forgot all about uh, how trump was messing up imports and so many industries already with this withdrawal from the architectural pillars of globalization such as the parent now this is you know the economic stuff or the uh, the, the, the political stuff like paris agreement on climate trans-pacific partnership world health organization Crucial Atlantic Alliance's gross mismanagement of COVID-19 responses, together with wrenching social turmoil not seen since the late 1960s, are all 
painfully visible manifestations of America's sharply diminished global leadership. And this might provide for the opportunity for the other players in the world who might just be a little pissed off at President Trump to finally get together and say, we can overthrow the dollar empire. And it's incumbent upon all of us, even those of us who are citizens of the empire, to do our part and do as little business in the U.S. dollar as possible. Buy silver, buy gold, use Bitcoin. And now we go to our big interview for the day. Do we have our guest lined up backstage? All right. CJ, if you would, please bring on Dr. Joe Jorgensen. Hey. All right. Hello, Joe. Excellent. Yourself? Not bad. A little busy. (laughs) I can only imagine. I'm enjoying my little break from running and catching my breath now. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm very honored today to introduce you the Libertarian Party nominee for President of the United States, Dr. Joe Jorgensen. And I just have to point out what she represents for the Libertarian Party and how excited I am that we have a candidate who represents Libertarian principles unapologetically with a practical, compassionate message who isn't relying, as we have in the past, on a government or political resume to get your attention, but the message and the principles themselves. One of the things that, to me, for those of you who are skeptical, is a clear line that she has drawn. And I know this from conversations with her and and sharing a stage with her in the past, but the clear line of a manifestation of the non-aggression principle in federal policy that she has drawn is that she would pardon everybody she can for victimless crimes. If there's no victim, there's no crime. And now I would like to see change a little faster, but just consider the implications of that. We've got Joe for a while. We're going to ask some good questions here and get into some of these policy issues uh, and, and what she's actually proposing for the United States. But, you know, this would fundamentally transform not just the political paradigm, but the federal government itself, eventually at least, into a voluntary institution. Without a president, with the backing of the people saying that the federal government should prosecute people for victimless crimes, their power to enforce them eventually fades away too. Dr. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. For those of you who don't know anything about your background, could you help us out with just a a quick bio you know, what's, what's your stump speech personal introduction? So my background is I've been in the movement for 40 years. My top three issues are, uh, and, and I know you've been listening to this for six months, sometimes uh, three, four times a weekend. Uh, my top issues are bringing the troops home, health care, and uh, the environment. So I'm trying to talk about issues that the American public Uh, is interested in that libertarians can offer a good solution for. And I'd like to point out, yes, we have the best solution for everything. However, these are topics that they're interested in. Well, well, Dr. Joe, if, if, if I may, I I want to, to, to a general public audience, I want you to start by telling us about like how, how your personal background and your resume contrasts to, uh, to Cheeto Jesus and the kid snipper. 
Well, of course, I have absolutely no experience in acting a tax, submitting a, or a, approving a, um, an unbalanced budget, making government bigger, taking away freedoms. None of that experience. Uh, <laughs> my experience is living under the law. And, and I would like to mention on a serious note that, yeah, when, when our founders created the Constitution, they had the idea of a citizen statesman. So not only were they supposed to only make a few laws, but they were supposed to go home and live underneath those laws. And, <laughs> and, you know, we've got Joe Biden, who's, you know, never lived under a law that he created. And I wish I could remember the name of the politician who said who, who said this. You know, this was before we had 24-hour news shows. Uh, this was back, you know, I don't know, maybe 1980s. And uh, a Democrat. As you know, we had the 1964 civil rights where you can't, uh, you can't, uh, discriminate gender, race, creed, and so forth. Well, what people didn't realize is that Congress was not subject to those same laws. And so somebody comes along and says, you know, maybe you ought to follow this 1960, you know, this, this little old 1964. <laughs> thing that you thought was so important and this guy i'll never forget um a, he was an older gentleman you know white hair and he puffed up his chest and he said i should be able to hire whoever i want <laughs> okay uh. there, there we go we've got the elite you know animal farm all over again we've got the elite few at the top who are making laws for everybody else but oh no they don't have to follow their own laws and and what was sad was in the 90s um, and, and, you know, since I'm talking to such a young whippersnapper, uh, let me explain to you about my generation of politics. So in the 90s, everybody was all up in arms because Congress had their own barbershop. You know, taxpayers were going to pay for the barbershop, which, correct, taxpayers shouldn't be paying for the barbershop. They get paid enough. They can afford their own haircuts. But it, it was that they were focused on barbershops and not, you know, uh, racism and sexism. And, and fairness in hiring when they themselves pass that law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love the animal farm reference. That's funny, just weird coincidence. I made one like 20 minutes ago before you came on. <laughs> I, you know, all, all, like we're talking about healthcare. You know, is the governor proposing universal healthcare for black Americans going to give up his special healthcare elite plan? Uh, all, all Americans are equal, but some are more equal than others. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, well, the, the same with, um, what was I going to mention? Uh, with Social Security, that the people in Congress have their own nice little, you know, retirement system. So, and, and they've got the money, they can afford it. But, yeah, I wish Animal Farm were required reading for yeah. every, <laughs> every grade school kid. That I think that opened up my eyes more than anything else. You know, I have I have to point out, I, I don't mean to laugh at all of these things yeah. that Joe has just pointed out, because some of them, like the thing, especially about the, the federal law has led to a lot of uh, serious actual sexual abuse um, right. of, of congressional staffers. And it's just the... The irony of it, it, when you're able to step back and see how silly, it's hard not to laugh at, at the irony of, of all these, you know, relatively, I, mean, I hate to say small because they're still injustices, but compared to the bigger tragedies right. of government like the Federal Reserve and war and things like that, 
But Joe, before we get to policy, one other quick question. You're, you know, we didn't get to talk about this as much as I had hoped. You know, my undergraduate degree is in psychology. Oh, cool. And, and, and I really value that background, both for self-awareness and in activism, in understanding others and in understanding politics and motivations and emotions. And even through the, the sort of bridge of, you know, Ludwig von Mises' concept of uh, praxeology and, and understanding incentive-based economic analysis. Do you think your background in psychology is, um, or I should say, how, how do you think it's, it's helping you at this point? Well, anything other than a law degree, I think, would be a, a you know, a positive. So, uh, and, and I'll, I'll quote Dr. Phil. Well, I don't want to do that. Um, I, I, I don't want to. You know, there are many fine lawyers in this country. The point I'm trying to make is when you go to Washington, you need to put laws in effect that average people can understand. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's the problem. But yeah, with psychology, uh, I, I, I got a little what they call into the weeds on another show explaining how, why Ron Paul has such staying power with the elaboration likelihood model. And I was reminded that I'm a presidential <laughs> candidate, not, um, a psychology <laughs> professor. Um, but if you're interested in knowing that we're all libertarians, right? Yeah. Well, honestly, you know, there's there's an important, you know, mental health awareness and just understanding of how, you know, human psychology works that they don't teach you in high school and government run schools. And, and I and I hope that, you know, the awareness like and, and to me, I'll just say one thing about my experience that, that was extremely formative and you know, from studying developmental psychology and working with at risk youth in, in Claremont, California. It was the, and, and also in going to Iraq and, and seeing people as the product of conditioning that when you understand, you know, in a sense, you know, as we say as libertarians, everybody is responsible for their actions and their behavior. They are also the product of so much trauma and violence and abuse. And, and there's, there's a, a sort of clinical way that removes the fault and the blame and create space for a lot more compassionate ways of addressing problems that have uh, an emotional or, or a mental health component. So that being said, um, how, how are you enjoying the trail? I mean, I know from, we, we had an online convention, which was uh, you know, unprecedented for us, of course, for the LP and generally, you know, a, a, a you know, a solid process, but now, I mean, and I saw you got to go to a candlelight vigil at one of the, the George Floyd protests. So if you could tell us about that a little bit, please. But the trail in general, is it more virtual than, than you would have anticipated? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I knew I knew that I would be, you know, stuck in my home like Joe Biden. But at least I'm not in the basement. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, at least, you know, you know, here's the good news is it's hard for us to compete with Democrats and Republicans because, as you often say, there's a duopoly. And uh, because, of course, they've got the money, so they've rigged the system against us. So we're having to spend our money on ballot access instead of actually on campaigning. But at least, hey, I, I, I can get a better background than Joe Biden. So, uh, it, you know, at, at least now we're on a level playing field, both locked up. But, yeah, New Hampshire is the only place I've traveled to. Uh, I've 
I think I'm going someplace once towards the end of June and then, uh, of course, the convention. And so it was great to actually meet new people. And I love New Hampshire because when I uh, was the VP nominee in 96, I think I spent four days. I spent longer in uh, New Hampshire than any other uh, state in you know, I went to 32 different states and I spent longer in New Hampshire than anywhere. So it's an awesome state, as I will, you know, uh, as you well know, because I know you went everywhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, I, I hope you're, you are coming to the national convention, right? Oh, yes. I mean, I, well, it's awesome. I mean, I'm still like, oh, crap, anything could happen at this point. I mean, it is scary. I, I, I mean, it's a great transition to get into that. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, even planning a trip from air to drive from Arizona to Florida, you know, like that we, we saw just, uh, about a month ago, I think it was now, you know, the coronavirus does have a tendency to cause blurred vision in news analysis. Um, there's, uh, you know, it seemed like every day felt like a week for a while. We saw vehicle checkpoints, you know, going into Florida specifically. Right, stopping right. people from New York coming into Florida. Who knows what's going to be? I'm all for it, you know, and I understand that there are going to be some people who might not be able to for legal, logistical type reasons. Um, but it, it, unless unless there are men with guns or women, yeah. if they send female officers with guns, I'll, I'll be disrespectful, I promise. But if they said unless unless they put people with guns, you know, if they put enforcement agents in between me and Orlando, I'll, I'll be. If it's happening, yeah, absolutely. Well, good. And, and I hope you're encouraging all of your listeners to attend because absolutely. You know, I, I'm absolutely. sure there won't be as many people as there usually are, so I'd love to see as many people as we can. Yeah, I know, and it's going to be a really important time for the team of the party to come together and, yeah. and organize around your campaign and, and to level up. So I hope you're ready to recruit a lot of volunteers. All right, so first... Oh, and, and can I mention, sorry to interrupt, but you, you talked about recruiting a lot of volunteers. We cannot believe how many people have volunteered, and many of them are non-libertarians, many more than we expected. So it, we are so happy about that. Excellent. Yeah, it's a good, I mean, you remember in 2016, we were all saying, it's the wor- the wor- best opportunity, the two most hated candidates in duopoly history with Trump and Clinton. Well, it keeps getting better, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and here's what I'm hoping to capitalize on, because I know a lot of people were saying that, and, you know, they hate both candidates. But I could also see that, and, and I was one of the few that had predicted Trump, although unfortunately I didn't have a podcast, so I can't go back and say I told you so, <laughs> you know, just like the three people around me that I, that, you know, I wanted to make bets with. But the one thing that I kept hearing about and seeing was basically people who had never voted or hadn't voted in 20 years, they wanted something different. And so I think it would have been hard for Gary Johnson to get those votes because because they saw a mainstream person as being an outsider, you know, somebody parachuting in at the top. And I agree. Uh, Trump, uh, you know, didn't have 40 years of political favors to uh, repay. So he was an outsider. But then he gets into office and he acts like everybody else. So now I'm hoping that those people who thought that Trump would be so great, uh, now that they realize that he didn't give them what they want, I hope that now that they've got their voter registration card, you know, that they didn't have before 2016, I hope now they will use that card to uh, vote for me 
to get what they wanted the first time around, which is an outsider and somebody different. Yes. Okay. So, Joe, the first question that's sort of bigger policy type stuff is is a, the really big hard one, and you got to give me just a second to kind of explain this. Of and the course. question is basically, where are things going right now? Where's America going right now? Where's the world going right now? Specifically, with all of the recent major shift in world society dynamics around the coronavirus, around the government response, obviously more importantly, more significantly, around George Floyd. I've set this up. One of the narratives that I've suggested is that maybe the Democrats set a trap for Trump with the coronaphobia crisis to, and basically tricked him into instead of, you know, having a moderate, appropriate response, you know, going heavy handed and then bragging about it in a press conference. And he thought, OK, I got one foot in the trap. I got one foot out. I can pull it out. And then the other foot slips on a banana peel named George Floyd. And, you know, maybe we're not going to have an election in November. Maybe it's like even D.C. just went to email ballots. You know, is like and I'm I'm all for the technology there just for the record. That, but do I trust the government to do it with transparency and an accountability that would it be satisfactory to anybody who cares? Of course not. So, Joe, in those sort of bigger dynamics uh, with the United States, with the world over the next six months, over the next two or three years, I, I really I, I suppose I would only ask you to speculate until your inauguration in January of next year. But. Where are things going? Well, first, I have more optimism than you have in the actual voting. I do think that we will be able to vote in person. I, 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 I really do think so. And I did hear, um, yeah, th- there was somebody who had said, you know, we voted during wars, we voted during the Depression, we you know, all these things that we voted during. And then, of course, the person wanted an online election or, or to can't, you know, to postpone the election, but. Um, yeah, it, of course, the country's going in the wrong direction. And with everything that's been going on, uh, my concern is that people are believing the narrative because if they didn't believe the narrative, we'd be much better off. And as you know, healthcare is one of my major issues. And it's just frustrating that people have bought into the narrative that we don't have a free market or, or no, that we do have a free market health system right. and that that free market health system does not work. And so now we need to try something different. So that, that's, that's what I've been saying is if, if I can get one idea across, because a lot of people, you know, most people aren't interested in politics like you and I are, you know, most people don't treat it as like our sport our you know, our, our, yeah, right. our, our, yeah the, the Sunday afternoon sport, we're going to watch politics. Most people. Wait, you can constrain yourself to Sundays? <laughs> well, no. Yeah, it was an analogy, metaphor. I always get those two confused. But I, I was a science major. But, uh, <laughs> but the point is um, that uh, people aren't interested enough in politics to dig to the next level or the level after that. But yep. I am hoping that maybe the turmoil will open up some of their eyes. I'm, I'm hoping that, that that will cause some changes. And and my big hope, again, 
is that the people who voted for Trump, and I don't blame them at all, by the way. If, if I didn't know a lot about politics, I would have voted for him, too, because here's somebody who's not a politician who says, hey, I'm going to come in and change things. And that's basically my message. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm not a politician. I'm going to change things. So I, I, I can understand the overwhelming support of getting Trump into office. I just hope that those same people see that things have not gotten better. I hope they're keeping up with the deficit and that they realize that the deficit has gotten bigger and it hasn't gotten smaller, as he said it would. George Floyd and defunding the police, Black Lives Matter, your take on all of that? Well, I pointed out that the federal government is the one who militarized the police. Maybe if the police didn't own tanks and other paramilitary equipment, that wouldn't have happened. And, um, yeah, we, we could go back to that and talk about what, what caused, you know, what caused all that. Because, okay, talk about psychology. Does my psychology help? Yeah, there's something called the weapons effect. And, yeah, if you've got weapons lying around, you're, you're more likely to use them. So what, if you were to put it on a referendum and ask the average person, hey, uh, would you like your taxes raised to maybe get a new swimming pool for the high school or remodel the grade school? Somebody might say, sure. If you ask them, okay, do you want your property taxes to go up to buy a tank? <laughs> you know, probably most people would say uh, no. So what do they do? The federal government takes our money without our choice, buys the tanks, and then goes back to the police department and says, hey, you know, want a free tank? It's free. Oh, and by the way, we give you free training, and we've got, you know, some other money in our back pocket here that we will pay you for um, additional equipment as you see fit. Who's going to say no? You know, people don't say no to free stuff. And, and, and I don't blame them because, I mean, of course, I don't like it. I wish they wouldn't do it. But I don't blame them because they're looking at it as saying, well, that's our money. Uh, of course, we would rather have the benefit of our money instead of, you know, Alabama or New York or Texas, whatever state isn't yours. So um, <clears throat> they take the stuff and then they become militarized. And now weapons effect, they've got the stuff and now they're going to use it. So. Uh, not a good idea. And uh, as far as the police defunding, this is where I get to use the great libertarian, you know, make the great libertarian point of we have too much intermingling between state and federal parties. Uh, and as president, if somebody wants to defund their police department, you know, oh well, that I should only be I should only be called in if I need it, and if I'm asked for help by the governor. I don't just go around putting my uh, nose where it doesn't belong. And here's where I completely agree with you on localization. Absolutely, police is a, is a local issue. Um, who you hire, who you fire, do you have body cams, do you not have body cams? All of those choices should be made by the people who live with those choices, namely the residents, the property owners who are paying the taxes, the citizens who live there, and the police. Let them let them worry, worry about it. Federal government should not be involved. Absolutely. Victims of family law for Jorgensen. I'm happy to see Chris Cole transfer that support from what we had in our campaign for you in the general, because I think this is a really under-discussed issue. Yeah. And I don't know if it needs to be front and center, but it definitely needs to be discussed more. 
what can you do as president? What are you proposing to the American people that we can do from the federal level to help reform family courts, to deal with families being ripped apart by government, government-sponsored child kidnapping, the foster system, and all the federal and, and legal incentives for these legal evils that are destroying American families? Again, localization is key. This is something the federal government should not be in. Uh, the needs of rural Appalachia are much different than downtown Manhattan, so let's let the people handle it. And when you put people closer to the problem, they're going to be more, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> more invested, more understanding. They're going to see the people who are in need. They're going to see the people who, um, you know, how they can be helped the, the best instead of taking the money, sending it to Washington, and then hope you get some back after some money is taken out. And you've probably heard my my explanation for charity, uh, one of them anyway, which is that if you had money, let's say you got uh, an inheritance and, you, and you're trying to decide where to spend it, and you want to really help those in need. And so, you know, let's say help, help those in need on this issue. So... Um, are you going to maybe donate money to the church? Because maybe the church can help victims. You know, a lot of people run to their churches for help. Are you going to give it to some private charity who uh, who has some kind of, um, you know, organization? Or are you going to say, no, I'm going to give my $10,000 inheritance to a federal government program? I mean, people laugh when they hear that. They know that giving their money to the federal government is not going to help them as much as if they kept it in their own community and could help the people more directly. And, in fact, what used to happen is the charity, more dollars went to charity when it was handled locally. Charity, like police, again, a local local issue. Veterans issues, you know. Something really near and dear to me and, 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 you know, a tricky one for libertarians when you look at the situation with the VA today. What's your policy priority for vets? Yeah, and let me mention, and, and if I haven't thanked you for your service, I, I believe I have. Let me thank you now. Well, no, I, no, I think you know better than that, Joe, because, you, yeah. know, you know, my take on that when someone says that you mean serving bankers and politicians and war profiteers, I demand that you separate these ideas. Right. That, that you can thank me for my intent, but not for my service. It was your time. It was your time on this earth that you willingly gave. So I think that demands a lot. And by the way, my dad was a veteran as well. Um, you know, we had the uh, veteran when, when he died several years ago, we had, you know, the flag and the whole ceremony. So um, I have utmost respect for veterans because you're right, the intention is to help our country, to serve and protect, to protect our citizens. Um, but as with everything else, the government can't do anything very well. And the, the VA hospital is just atrocious. And I don't know why that alone doesn't scare the average American from uh, a single-payer system or you know Medicare for all. And you and I were both calling it, yeah, the VA hospital for all. Why would you want that? And I think the one of the best things we can do to help the veterans, and I hope you agree with me, is to shut down the whole VA hospital system and put the dollars 
in their own, um, under their own care or, or their own uh, control and let them go out and find the health care that yeah. they need and let the doctors yeah. compete so that when doctors compete, they give them the best care. And as you know, if we look at cosmetic surgery and LASIK surgery, those are the only two kind of non, you know, those are the only two somewhat free market uh, yeah. specialties because people spend their own money, not the insurance company. And so those doctors have to compete for our business. And so, and, and, and I'm explaining this because I don't want anybody to think, oh, gee, she wants to just, you know, put veterans out on their own. No, people, when they want LASIK surgery, they look at different doctors, they compare prices, and they get to yep. keep what they don't yep. spend. And so the doctors have to compete for their business. Car dealers have to compete for your business. Computer manufacturers have to uh, compete for your business. Why not doctors? And I want to see doctors competing against each other to provide our veterans with the best care possible. Yeah, so switching more to an outsourcing role. I mean, the bureaucracy can't screw up as much when it's just moving the money around and instead of also spending all of it and removing any competitive element. I suppose it goes without saying that you would also end any drug war type restrictions that would prevent uh, the exploration and, and appropriate study of PTSD treatments like MDMA and psilocybin that are now scheduled whatever illegal yeah, psilocybin has shown, shown such promise with uh, depression. Uh, but, you know, people just have, you know, a, a stereotype, uh, a prejudice against it, and it's a shame. And we would not have had the opioid crisis we have if marijuana had been legal. It's just, and, and it's not just a matter of, it's my body, I should be able to do it what, with it what I want. It's a medical issue. It's the government saying you cannot have the medicine that you require. And I had met an author, um, a well-known author back in the 90s who had AIDS. And this was back before, you know, when, when AIDS was basically a death sentence. And when he tried to take the medication, he would get terribly sick and he couldn't keep his food down. And so he used marijuana and he got caught, thrown in jail and basically starved to death because he couldn't get... Uh, he couldn't keep the food down, and they didn't have the drugs they have today or the synthetic marijuana that, you know, for for some reason, the earlier version of synthetic marijuana didn't work. And it's like, so you're going to deny somebody taking this plant <laughs> um, and basically die. Yeah. Now, I, I know this is this sounds like I'm getting all kind of grammar Nazi on you, but oh. it is it is a it is a meaningful thing in the wording that I've, I, didn't, I don't take it too seriously, but that I've slowly conditioned myself and hearing the community use the term more, it's the cannabis community, not the marijuana community. Oh, okay. You know, and I, I think just, I, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that we, I mean, Gary Johnson was pretty good on, you know, talking about pot too, but yeah, I, I just, it's, it just occurred to me like, yeah, I, 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 it's the cannabis community now. And I, and I just, I, I hope you can, because we're so, we're both, we're both the products of so much propaganda and conditioning, even around this, until you point out to people, look, no, marijuana is the evil propaganda racist term meant to scare you about this evil demon weed from Mexico. And now, I mean, it's benign now. You know, we don't, we don't, it, but it, it, you know, you go, wow, how did, how did that become the term that we use to describe this miracle plant? 
Well, I'll have to have I'll have to have a, a meeting about that with my team because you're absolutely right. I don't want to use something that has a, a, a negative connotation. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no one would hold it against but, you. Like it's just but, that there's a better right. But on the other hand, how familiar are they with cannabis and not marijuana? So I want to speak in the American voters. Oh. I That's an interesting question. Oh, yeah, that you, you're you're going to lose. I don't know how many Jim. How many do you think any Americans now like still don't know? Like when you say cannabis, the what, what you're talking about. I think it's out there enough. Yeah. But yeah, do the do do the calculation for the flip. That's good messaging awareness. So just yeah. two more quick questions before we go to the peanut gallery. Here we have uh, we have Jim comment Jim Freedom in studio watching our live stream and the comments. So if anybody wants to add a question for Dr. Jorgensen, throw it in right now. Jim will get to it in just a couple minutes. Dr. Joe, Federal Reserve Policy. Uh, first audit, then abolish. And while I was auditing, I would go to Ron Paul and ask for his recommendation of who to put in charge while we were getting ready to dismantle it. All right. Why, why do you have to audit it before abolishing it? Uh, because it would be the equivalent of bursting a bubble, like how we had the real estate bubble. And when it bursts, it kind of falls apart. So, okay. So just, just, so it's not, it's, it's, it's not to determine whether or not no, to abolish no, it. No, it's no, just no. to understand, to take account of it as sort of as it's sort of the first you, you could just say abolishing it then, right? Because we're going to audit. Yeah, we're going to look at what we're abolishing, but we're not just going to like throw a grenade at it, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, so, I'm, I'm all often, right. Yeah, I'm often asked the question: audit or abolish? So, or or do I want to audit it? So apparently, right. uh, apparently, auditing the FDA is a big thing. So I want to make clear to the people who want it audited that yes, I'm hearing you, and I will audit it. But <laughs> all right, well said. You're planning to get into the debates. We're working. And as I mentioned, we're so excited that just the fact that we've got so many followers and just the fact that we've got so many non-libertarians. And usually when you ask people, um, you know, why do you want to work for the campaign? Uh, you know, like, well, I'm a libertarian, you're a hardcore libertarian. I work on campaigns. And we're just getting people who are saying, we want Joe to be president. We don't want the two old rich white guys. So I think, and, and again, I, and you were in all the debates. I never stood up there and said, I'm a woman, but for me, um, but it, apparently it is to my advantage that people are saying, we don't want the two old white guys. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, especially at this point. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I believe we covered everything that we needed to from our patron-only Patreon Telegram chat. Do we have any other questions, Jim, that we need to get into the mix here? I saw one from Erica Creech on Facebook, and she asks, Joe Jorgensen, would you look at H.H. Dalai Lama emotional hygiene curriculum? This is for elementary through high school. Thank you. So wait, is, that's not written in the chat, bo chat box? No, there, hey, look at that. All right, look at that, our amazing producer on top of that. Yeah, so emotional hygiene curriculum. Have you heard of that? No. Huh. Well, of course, my platform is to get rid of the Department of Education, and if people want to use their own money to have that in their school, of course, I wouldn't stop that. I mean, unless it's taking away somebody else's rights. 
Right. So, Joe, let me turn this into, uh, I think, a more positive question for you and, and, and for everybody that will, will satisfy the questioner as well. Is that when we see government out of education entirely, or at least down to the local or community and voluntary level, as a professional educator, what shift in the education paradigm do you think is going to be most helpful? Like, as the questioner suggested here, possibly something with more emotional awareness, you know, maybe teaching civics in high school again, or financial planning, or how the dollar works, and what is it, in, in, or, or unschooling, or, you know, student-based learning. What You know, as a professional educator, what shift do you see in education is most helpful for America? Well, yeah, so there's a little misconception in our country about educator, about the education industry. Uh, even though I teach college, I do not have a degree in education. I've never even taken an education class because at the college level, what they do is they take people in their field and just hope that they can kind of teach well enough. Um, <laughs> I realize, is, you know, maybe it wasn't planned to be that way because the whole college experience started off as you've got the learned scientist or whoever who takes a few people under his wing. Yes, I said his on purpose because, of course, women weren't allowed to be um you know, scientists back then or, or professors. And then, um, or at least I'm not saying there was a law against it, but that wasn't done. And, uh, and then they would teach the few kind of as a mentor. And so I really do not know a lot about, uh, education at the elementary level, except to know that once again, localization is key. And once again, I'm going to trust the teachers and parents to come up with a, the best system for the students uh, because I, I know nothing about the uh, curriculum except to know that as, you know, as president, I would give them educational freedom for the first time in their lives. <laughs> awesome. CJ, if you would, please pull up Dr. Joe's website here. Our, our producer um, has this all ready to go here, and I want to point this out so that people know where they can go to volunteer, to sign up, to get on your email list, to donate. Uh, is there anything you want to point out about the, the website or about your campaign or, or any uh, final thoughts about how people can connect with you this year, Joe? No, as I mentioned, I'm, we are just ecstatic to get so many people who are non-libertarians. So we would love your help. And uh, again, I'm, I'm with you. Adam, on all of the uh, libertarian issues as far as we need to get the federal government out of, you know, crime, the police departments, education, charity, all of those things. So uh, if you agree with Adam, please check us out on our website. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Jorgensen. I encourage everybody to do that. And best of luck on the campaign trail. We're looking forward to catching up with you again periodically over the next few months. And uh, in about a month, we're going to be talking to your running mate, uh, Spike Cohen, and getting an update on, on how the trail is treating him. But as always, uh, the Adam versus the Man platform is at your service. Well, thank you so much. And I can't wait to see you in uh, July. <laughs> and your That's lovely new bride as well. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks. We'll see you. And, and say, say hi to her for me. <laughs> Will do. All right. That was a lot of fun. We, we covered everybody from, from Telegram, got all those questions. I hope people were satisfied with how I worked those in to the interview. All right. We got 20 minutes left. Were there, were there any other uh, general comments, Jim, that you wanted to share before we, 
We got a lot of headlines to read. We're not going to get through half of these. Well, 20 yeah. minutes. All right, I got I got a lot of quick ones, though. I know burning comments. We're going to do this. Get ready. We're going to do one more round of comments at the end here. From needtoknow.news, Georgia, three radical leftists track cops to their homes, firebomb their cars. Gwinnett County, Georgia, three people, Alvin Joseph, Lakela Mack, and Ibuka Chikimora, tracked two Georgia law enforcement officers to their homes and set their patrol vehicles on fire using Molotov cocktails last Thursday night. The driver of the suspect's vehicle, Alvin Joseph, 21, had also been arrested at a protest on May 30 after officers used a taser to subdue him, and he was released hours after his arrest. You know, that kind of suggests a different headline. Protester tasered, harassed, and kidnapped by cops seeks revenge. Now, I I wouldn't have written either of those headlines, but certainly something in between might have been a little bit more righteous to include that these weren't just random angry people. And as you can tell, they're also very black, black Americans who justifiably see themselves as victims of police terrorism and are fighting back. And I, you know, I do not support this. I support the message. I'm grateful for the positive effects. Um, and I, I, but the only reason I don't support it is because I, I don't think it's the best way to achieve their goals and that it has unintended consequences of increasing violence and division and conflict. But you know what? Cops being afraid to be cops, quitting their jobs because they know they're not really serving, that the system is broken. They don't want to serve a broken system anymore. If you're a cop and you work for a bad department, I want you to know this story. This is how this is how much you have screwed up American police. That now you might get followed home and have your vehicle firebomb. Could be worse. And you know, these are the people who got caught. It seems like a relatively easy crime to get away with. I mean, they're not doing it in the parking lots outside of police buildings obviously they use a, when do they get the car by itself you know then and make sure that there's no one awake watching it yeah the way they drive your patrol car home and i mean there's so so many problems to untangle here i'm not even going to try joseph has been charged with possession of a firearm by a convicted felon interference with government property and two counts each of possession of tools for the commission of a crime, criminal trespass, possession, and manufacturing of destructive device, and first-degree arson. So, I like I said, I, I can't, I can't support this, but I can say thank you to people who did this and who are making very careful to not hurt anyone and making it difficult for police to carry on what has become the norm of police harassment and terrorism in America. Related story in Missouri, retired St. Louis police captain David Dorn, 77, killed by looters. Can we get this video up? Just two minutes, please, CJ. Let's see. This is the the actual video in uh on that freedomsphoenix.com page 
Retired St. Louis Police Captain David Dorn, 77, was gunned down and murdered last week. Can we play the video? Yes, that one. Awesome. Those all seven entering through the shattered glass of the shop's front door during the rioting and looting that followed the earlier peaceful protests of the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minnesota 11 days ago. You see these seven run throughout the store. One appears to have a cut on his left hand. Another points a gun toward the door. The beloved Captain Dorn served 38 years with St. Louis police and then later served as chief of the Moline Acres Police Department. Dorn was a friend of the shop owner and would check on the place when burglar alarms were set off. The Crime Stoppers reward in the case has grown to $46,000. Along with the surveillance video, Crime Stoppers received a Facebook Live post disturbingly showing Dorn's dying moments as the looting continued. It has also been turned over to investigators. I worked with Captain Dorn for many years. Love the man. Love his family. I can't watch that. I sent it to the investigators. He's every man, he's every woman, he's every police officer. That was so unnecessary, so egregious, so horrible that, uh, you know, we can do everything in our power to find out who this person was and uh, make sure he, they're not able to do it again. As Scary reality that we live in today. Um, next story, a measure of the economic collapse that we're facing. Just putting it into real terms for you from BloombergQuint.com. As many as 25,000 U.S. stores may close in 2020, mostly in malls. And it's funny, this is like my wife and I, our, our, our sort of biggest personality difference. She's a big fan of malls. I'm a big not fan of malls, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. No, I don't, I don't mind. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not like an anti-mall curmudgeon, but, um, in terms of like retail inefficiency and, you know, people spending a lot of money to go window shopping and supporting, uh, a sort of a, a glitzy as opposed to an efficient shopping experience. Yeah. I, I have, I have, I have see malls are problematic for me, uh, but uh, and, and, and there's a general positive adjustment here too, right? Just how many Americans, just people around the world, were just in the habit of going shopping for stuff that you don't need to go shopping for in person on a regular basis. That like, yeah, like, and, and, and I'm not saying hey, Amazon is the be all end all solution to all of our problems, but you know, Amazon Prime subscriptions, you just you, even for any of your groceries that are not like really like my ideal lifestyle here, like I would never go shopping. Like really I should like, it, actually the one thing would be things that can't be shipped. The only thing is like things that are impractical to ship, you know, building materials, like, you know, big objects that can't be, but even then you delivery, you know, right. Why? You know, and then anything that's non-perishable can be delivered by drone. I mean, if you can move, we're, we're going to get to the drone story today. It's one, I promise we're going to end with that. Uh, <laughs> well, like if you can, why, like why, it's just, it's inefficient. And you say, well, Adam, there's an extra good, and this is the uh, argument my wife would make, right? But I get to go, I get to enjoy shopping and the fans. And it's like, at some point, 
there are better things, you know, than retail therapy. And I get it. If that's all you got, if that's the best, get the therapy you need. If that, like, and I'm not telling people you're wrong for going like, I, cause I would never tell my wife this, right. You know, you're wrong for enjoying shopping. No, like if you, if it may, if you enjoy it, it's a good experience for you. Like, man, eh, go out and do it. But overall for the progress of society. And, and by the way, for the things that should be like clothing, for example, clothing, I think there's a legitimate shopping experience around clothing, even like not, maybe not for me. I know my sizes. I can order it. If it fits good. If it doesn't, I can try. but for some things, you know, if I'm shopping for, I don't know, a weird Halloween costume or I don't know, if I had the money to buy a fancy suit as opposed to a black suit for a, a wedding or a special occasion, like, I, I, yeah, I'd want to go in person. I'd want to try something on. Like, okay, I get that. But then here's the thing is when you put more resources into things that don't have that benefit, like if you go shopping for groceries and half of what you buy is non-perishables that you buy every single week, you could have those just delivered by autom by automation, you know, and be way more. And, and maybe now you only go gr grocery shopping for perishables or you can grow them yourself. How much better would that be, right? And if you could, so you see what, so I'm, I'm excited about the general trend here, but as many as 25,000 U.S. stores could close permanently this year after the coronavirus pandemic devastated an industry where many mall-based retailers were already struggling. And this is one of those things about like jobs not coming back. These jobs aren't coming back. It's going to take possibly 10 years for all of the other businesses and economic mechanisms of, of dealing with people being unemployed and you know where do you put them back to work like what now does this excess labor capital go to most effectively most efficiently it's not housing we have more empty homes and we have homeless people you know it's not going to go into construction it's not going to go into public works because government's not going to do any expanding you know is it where in the new digital economy does it go is it go to entertainment you know like yeah there are more tiktok stars than ever before okay cool like if you spend more time being entertained you know is, is, is the people who have money are, are you and really you think about specialization of labor over the course of human history when everybody was a hunter-gatherer there weren't any youtube stars right and as you know society progressed you had greek theater and so on and so forth and you know shakespeare and, and authors and an explosion, you know, really rather a slow creep of, you know, economic resources being able to go towards entertainment. Now it's exponential. You know, where, like, and if you can, can basically it's, if you no longer have a job or you're part of, like, like say you are, um, like, say, well, let's say, let's say restaurants completely went out, like in-person dining just didn't, was not a thing anymore. I know that's not true, but if it got to that point, right? That entire sector of, of people doing, you know, the servers in restaurants, like, disappears. But everybody else still has their jobs. Well, now, what's the, the, the question is, how do those people out of work start making income? As, you know, as, as a whole, if you step back and look at that, you know, that uh, economic sector, that demographic of the population that's now out of work, how many of them are sitting at home right now making arts and crafts and just... You know, just make, and, and maybe this is what happened now. Well, we're, instead of enriching our lives with food service and retail therapy time, we're enhancing our lives by serving each other in the remote, remote economy 
And maybe now everybody who's still got those jobs is going to be able to, you know, the other jobs that aren't negatively impacted in their sectors or asthma, still able to make money in, in, in the, the normal ways before. Well, now your life is enhanced in a different way. And so, you know, seeing stores close and, you know, shifts to that, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of like, did, did we, do we create a jobs program for horse and buggy manufacturers when the automobile was invented? No, we didn't. We, we let the, the economy adapt. And similarly, it will. Um, skipping ahead, the local.es masks to be compulsory in Spain until virus permanently defeated, according to their health minister. I, I, I'm like, how do you say ooh, until the state of emergency ends on June 21st. All right, so here it is. Ela said the measure would remain in force after the state of emergency ends on June 21st and quote, will remain in place until we permanently defeat the virus, which is when we have an effective treatment or vaccine against it. Now, this is like just, I'm, I'm just covering the story to point out like another like scary finger trap aspect that we've kind of like walked into with the coronavirus crap. We might never have an effective vaccine or treatment, just like we don't have an effective vaccine or treatment for the flu or the common cold. Like it's just a virus that's like it's part of the human experience. We manage it. Now, would you say, do we have, now this is a bit of a semantic thing and I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to separate my, cause you know, I, I do have an undergraduate degree in psychology and I hate to say that I have like the slightest background in medicine, but effective treatment. Do, do we, in, in layman's terms, do we have an effective treatment for the common cold? Do you say you treat, do we have a treatment for the cold that's effective? No, you, right? You manage a manage cold and it runs its yeah. course. You don't treat, do you ever, we say, do you have cold medicine? Right. We, we, you know, is your cold, has your cold been treated? Do you really like treat the cold? I, I don't know, like I'm saying the word treat so many times yeah, and it's yeah, like yeah. getting a little weird. But, and if they can do it for this, and I, I was, what's the, now I need to look up the quote. Um, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Let's see. Was it Voltaire? Yeah, I should know this one. Voltaire from Questions sur les miracles. No, it's some French title. I'm not going to put that. You extrait de l'autre de Monsieur de Voltaire. Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. And we are just seeing now how many absurdities we have been led to believe. Which brings us to the next story from news.trust.org from Reuters. Brazil sows further COVID-19 confusion by releasing contradictory sets of figures. Uh, just a little footnote here in the news. The, initially, the data released on Sunday evening said Brazil had a total death toll of 37,000, total of 685,000 cases. Although the ministry did not break out these daily numbers in the previous 24 hours, the country had registered 1,382 new deaths. But then it came out again. They updated with completely different figures, putting the days dead at 525, so almost uh, as low as a third. And new cases at 18,912. So more new, like just when you start working for government, do you lose the ability to 
count? To think? I know you're responding to Warped, and, but no, the reason behind this is they don't, like, if they cared, if they didn't want the confusion, it would be very easy for them to just administer some controls. To say, hey, you know what? We're going to put out a consistent message. Even if the message is, we can't say right now, or we don't know right now, or here's a big range, and we're just, but we're going to, or it's really scary, and you got to, you have to have a hazmat suit on, anything. But we're going to have a consistent message, and it's going to be crystal clear what the threat is and what we're advising is. No, they want it to be confusing. They want it to be confusing because then it's more, uh, it's easier to manipulate. Nextgov.com lawmakers want to know why DHS, Department of Homeland Security, used drones to surveil protesters. We're not talking about comment Jim Freedom on the streets in Phoenix with, with his, with his, um, professional grade toy. Uh, we're talking about actual drones being used now. And I'm at, like, I, by this was, uh, BPD. Border Patrol, uh, Homeland Security Department, where was it? Um, custom, uh, the drone that was flown was reportedly also flown far outside the bounds of Customs and Border Protection's jurisdiction. Federal law authorizes CBP to conduct its missions within a reasonable distance, not to exceed more than 100 miles inland from an external boundary of the United States. Shit, I wonder if we secede here, if they'll use this as an excuse that my property line is a U.S. boundary and they get to patrol within 100 miles of here now. I mean, it doesn't matter. Uh, just a fun little footnote to the protest. Uh, some of the police reforms being considered, I think we're going to get have to get into these on, on the next show more thoroughly. Um, there's a proposal by Governor Pritzker and... Um, Illinois to require cops to get state licenses. While I don't agree with the state doing this, it might be a big step in the right direction. At the federal level, Democrats' police reform bill would ban chokeholds, make civil suits against officers easier. I'm all for that. Um, again, if not the mechanism, we're going to have to get into the case with uh, Newark, or sorry, Camden, New Jersey, who got rid of their police force with great success. Couple footnotes too about the general texture of coronaphobia from disrn.com. Chicago suffers deadliest day in 60 years with 18 murders in 24 hours. Next story here uh, from fox5ny.com. Seven people shot within 10 minutes in three separate incidents in Brooklyn. I don't think I'm exaggerating too much uh, to say we're, we're getting just a little bit towards like purge night world, mm -hmm. you know, and just a little bit, not, I'm not comparing it. It's not, but just, a, just like one step, one big step in that direction of no accountability or, you know, and, and, you know, in a time like this, you go, Oh shit, the government systems of accountability are failing. What are we going to do? And it's like government breaks your leg, gives you a crutch, tells you that you can't walk without government. Well, what happens when government comes out and kicks the crutch out from underneath you? 
You're tempted to beg the government for the crutch back and say, come on, I can't walk. Give me, I need government. Give me, I give up. I need you. Give me the crutch. But you don't. You, even in this analogy, you're better off rather than someone who's going to knock that crutch out from underneath you and make you fall. And really, you're better off just lay down and heal. You know, lay down and build that leg back. Get that leg, like build the grassroots, bottom-up, real mechanisms of accountability. And, you know, that's a long process. And I don't want to say that we should, like, really, we shouldn't ask for the crutch back at all. No, we should. Like, in a sense, you know, to the point where, you know, and by the way, like, maybe maybe this is a crutch. It's got, a, it's got some spikes in here. I'm getting crazy with the analogy, right? Maybe the crutch has some spikes sticking out on all around it. And so when you walk, it's spike, you know, your other, your leg is like, it's all getting, it's staying injured, right? Better, it makes the analogy, right? Your injured leg stays injured. You know, well, let's ask for the crutch back without, without the spikes, you know, and maybe we can do that in a way. Like, I'm not, I'm not in the business of the asking for more government part. It's going to come back without me saying anything. It's going to come back worse in a lot of ways. In some ways, it's going to come back better. There are going to be positive reforms that come out of this. Okay, so uh, another story we didn't get to today. As you, but uh, dude, this is kind of a nice little. I told you so. As U.S. cities crumble, demand for rural and suburban properties is soaring. Yep, told you so. Um, fun little story from DetroitNews.com: Feds torpedo alleged submarine smuggler in Detroit River bust. A Canadian man who allegedly admitted using a submarine to smuggle drugs and money into the U.S. was charged Friday after federal agents found him floating unconscious in the Detroit River while hauling 265 pounds of marijuana, according to authorities. The case, the case against Glenn Richard Mousseau, 49, of Windsor, Ontario, a great Francophile name, was filed in federal court and describes an unusual twist on the rich bootlegging history of smuggling drugs, people, and liquor across the international border between Detroit and Canada. Smugglers try out all means when trying to smuggle things into the U.S. As Chris Grogan, a Customs and Border Protection spokesman. Um, so this is just, yeah, I, I, I just want to, boy, this is just a fun little, like, yeah, it's still happening. There's the, the like, the, this is still the craziness around cannabis with the drug war in the United States. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, I, I, I put myself in, in the victim's shoes here. The, the guy who was arrested. Like, what's the incentive he's responding to? I could risk my life and, and freedom to make money doing something that most people aren't willing to do. Government has made danger profitable. This guy risked his life and almost died. And I, like, how many, you know what? You go, yeah, okay, Adam, but what about the southern border? Yeah, that's the real cost. How many, how many people trying to get in the United States from Mexico have died in vehicles, you know, or because of the drug war and the mass graves that we see from cartels when they're wiping out their opposition? Anyway, um, interesting twist in the George. Floyd legal case itself. We're going to come back to Thomas Lane. Turns out one analysis of 
the incident would suggest that he wasn't really at fault. Junior officer shows up, follows procedure, is, is manhandling the guy, but without causing injury. And while his superior on the force, the guy who actually killed George with his knee on the neck, is doing that inappropriate thing, he actually suggested that he move and turn him over. And you go, how do you draw the line for accessory to murder? If you're, you know, I mean, like, put, put, put you in a, you know, take the law enforcement situation out of it for a second. Let's say, Jim, you got a job at a machine shop. And, uh, you know, there's a foreman and, you know, there's, there's some, somebody who's injured on the job and the foreman is the one who's, you know, medic trained, right? EMT, whatever. And he goes and he's doing something that you see is wrong, but you're not the expert. And you helped him. You got the guy on the street. You tied him down to the stretcher because he was out. He's having a seat. He's having a seat or something silly like that, right? You tell the you tell the guy, hey, I think you're doing the wrong thing. You should do the right thing. And later turns out his negligence, bad decision, conscience, consciously caused this person to die. And you could have stopped it if you had been forceful intervening against someone who had higher authority and knowledge of procedure and what you were doing there and what was relevant to dealing with this person's life. Would you want to be held responsible in that situation for that man's death? I don't think you should be. You, you actually intervened verbally, responsibly, based on what you saw. That might be a, that might be what the case comes down to with, uh, at very least, Officer Lane. Because if you didn't know that he was killing him, or you thought he might be, and you addressed that, can, can you then be blamed for performing the external security function of stopping other people from getting to him? We're going to get into this tomorrow and untangle this tricky ethical case. All right. So we had um, some other fun stories, but I did promise you we would end with the drone. So we'll do this and make sure that CJ doesn't have, we are at two Oh six minutes here. All right. We'll do, we'll do this and wrap up by two ten. Um, from Yahoo news, passenger drone that can fly at 80 miles an hour is exhibited in China. A drone big enough to carry human passengers was exhibited in China this week and manufacturer Yang hoped that the machine could soon work like a flying taxi. The Yang 216 has a top speed of 80 miles an hour and is autonomous, receiving signals via a 4G or 5G phone network from a command and control center. It can, it can carry a payload of up to 220 kilograms and has a range of up to 20 miles. The aircraft is fully electric-powered and can be charged off the mains in one hour. It requires no runway to take off. Yang said, quote, The technology of autonomous flight eliminates the possibility of failure or malfunction caused by man-made errors. Without any concern about controlling or operating the aircraft, the passenger can just sit and enjoy the journey. We might not ever get self-driving cars as the dominant transportation paradigm. We might skip straight ahead to self-flying cars. 
something I've been predicting for years now. This is a technology that re really is way behind in terms of our potential to have done this years ago. This should be the norm. Not only is this amazing for so many things, because this is going to be one way or another, something like this, just because we know that this is possible. This is going to be the new transportation paradigm. This is going to be how people get around from now on. Maybe not, okay, not now, but soon, from soon on, this is going to be the general reality. This is going to be cheaper than a car, more efficient than a car, lower maintenance than a car, more effective than a car, and I would bet you safer than a car. And they can design these pods to be, you know, airbag sensor crash. So like they could probably, you know, they could probably design this thing to be able to crash. I mean, they're not going to, you're going to have so many good sensors on these, like, but then if it, if it fell out of the sky, I mean, it's going to be flying at a low enough altitude. I mean, over the tree line, zipping around, not constrained by roads up to 80 miles an hour already with just this model, 20 mile range, not that impressive. That seems like the limiting factor at this point. But if you can get around from stop to you go 20 miles, I mean, how many of your, if you go 20 miles to the groceries, like how most of human travel, even commuting is in trips shorter than 20 miles. Eventually you're going to be able to park these things in little charging docks. Piece of cake, 20 miles. You're going to be able to get around, do everything. And you're, they're going to be safer than a car by far. I mean, you, you fall out of this, like if it's going 80 miles an hour, I mean, I bet it's even going to have a backup system. Like you hit a wall. You had a cliff or a building. I mean, but it's going to have a, like, it's going to have a sensor that's going to make that impossible. That if it sees a wall coming, it's just going to drop. It's going to, you know, parachute and, you know, drop out of the sky. And these things are going to be so rare because they're so much more reliable and effective than cars. So much more safer with the navigation. And you know what this means? You know, is this, this really is a, uh, at least in the United States and really globally, even a bigger problem. But even in the United States where we think of, you know, uh, you know, we have the government making our roads for us and making sure that our cars are safe with all their legislation and regulation of the automobile industry. 40,000 Americans die on American roads every single year, and most of them needlessly because we have the technology for a safer transportation paradigm. This is it. Welcome to the future right around the corner. And with that, finally, last chance. Oh my gosh, we had two oh nine fifty seven. Jim, you have two seconds for comments. Okay, what are we doing? If we have AI robots that can be pushed and catch itself, we should be. We should already have flying cars. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and if again, really essential documentary. Who killed the electric car? If you haven't seen it, download that. Go watch it wherever where you can stream it. Um, just to, to have a sense of how the um, you know, automobile industry can kill competing technologies. Right. Anyway, any, any any other hot comments before we wrap it up and say goodbye to everybody? CJ's got the Freedom Line. Oh, whoops. I got to go point to the left. The Freedom Line on screen right there. Go to thefreedomline.com. Join the email list. Get the book for free. Find a way to subscribe. Um, it is one of the things, by the way, that is on our, our post-campaign production organization to-do list is to get our email list back up as a uh, general functional element of, of Adam versus the man. So um, 
wherever you sign up, at least you'll be on the list somewhere. Any other comments? All right, with that, peace and love, y'all. We will talk to you tomorrow.